You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.42, The Puppet, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and you might find this hard to believe, but the construction we complained about weeks ago is still going on outside our studio. This is just what life is for us now. This is normal. This is fine. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and trying to avoid Hathaway spoilers, although honestly, by the time we get to it, in 2050 or so, I will have forgotten everything I hear about it now. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 455 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Oddbark, Shauna N, and Chip Highbeams. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Did you know we have merch for sale? Through our online shop at gundampodcast.threadless.com, you can get our designs on stickers, t-shirts, water bottles, notebooks, uh, shower curtains, skateboard decks, and more. You should check it out. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 44, Emery's Glory, or Emery Sange. This episode originally aired on January 10th, 1987, after the show returned from a two-week break around the new year. It was written by Suzuki Yumiko and Tomino Yoshiyuki, his first writing credit on Double Zeta, and Suzuki's last writing credit on Double Zeta, or as far as we can tell, on any anime. It was directed by Egami Kiyoshi, with storyboards by Sugishima Kunihisa and Tomino. For our research this week, we have another installment in Tales of the Tale of the Heike, a.k.a. Heike Monogatari Breakdown. And Nina has some research on the ballad tradition Enka that will help us say goodbye to another character. But first, it's time for another episode of Radio Free Shangri-La. Yes, we are violating our recently enacted rule against doing radio dramas in the same episodes as eulogies, but we're running short on episodes in Season 3, and I'm not about to leave RFS without a proper ending. As Tom Thompson and Tom Tom's father reconnect on side six, and Nina Nina Stotter's heavily armed but lightly paid NZC interns scour the colonies for him, the voice actors of Radio Free Shangri-La continue their broadcast from the hijacked cruiser Nindra. They are seized by a furious urgency, as though aware that they have only a little time left in which to finish their tale. They work ceaselessly, ignoring the transient demands of mere flesh in the pursuit of artistic immortality. Even the need for sleep gives way before the relentless assault of Become a Monster canned energy beverage. 
Their minds marinate in blue raspberry-flavored psychoactive syrup. But some needs are not so easily excised. In the mess hall... Who wants another Burger Sovereign implausibly beef-like patty? Ooh, me. Do you think we could get Burger Sovereign to sponsor us? I love their slogan. Burger Sovereign. Five out of seven sides agree. Our burgers meet the legal definition of food. Oh, I miss Tim. Ill-advised sponsorship opportunities were kind of his thing. But then, as if on cue... Isn't that the communicator? We're receiving a message. Oh, it might be fan mail. Play it. Play it. This is Tim Timson to the crew of the Nindra. Tim Timson to the cast and crew it's Tim. of the Nindra. He's Dear alive. Nindra. But how? Quiet down. I can't hear what he's saying. I've obtained an item of immense power. This the greatest radio show in history. Silence the haters. You must inside six. I repeat, you must meet me inside six. I'll be waiting for you at the in the mall. The actors exchange glances. Tonight, they will debate how to respond to Tim Timson's frantic message. By tomorrow morning, their course will be set for side six. But for now, there are radio dramas to record. At the entrance to the Computesworth Mansion, a loyal butler blocks the door. Absolutely not. I don't know how you survived, but so long as the Computesworth Manor remains in my charge, the likes of you shall never again darken this threshold. Leave at once. Cast your evil shadow over Mistress Bethany's future no more. Guildenstern, why are you shouting? Oh, uh, it's... Just uh, some traveling solicitor. Bethany. Hector? I must see you. Please tell Guildenstern to let me in. Guildenstern, I insist you let my fiancé in at once. Oh, very well. Mr. Hector, I advise you to remain on your very best behavior during your visit. I'm not afraid to finish what I started in Dakar. Come along, dear. We can catch up over tea in the second ancillary drawing room. I have ever so much to tell you. Oh, I don't know where to start. Did you know that my sister Alice, you remember her, of course, well, did you know that she's actually only half computer? My new friend Vale told me she's a computer and a human person with organs and everything. Then, after they left me at the hospital, I signed myself out and took the first express shuttle back to Shangri-La. But why would you take such a dreadful risk? I had to see you, Bethany. I had to tell you the truth. <gasps> then it's true? Yes, I've been working with Alice and my brother to steal your inheritance all along. Oh! What did you think I was going to say? No, no, yours makes much more sense. Um, but I just don't see why you'd all go to so much trouble when Alice is already getting half of everything. That's just it. They don't want the money. They want your harrow. But I don't have a harrow. Wait. Do you mean that 
rusty old harrow Unky Mosk gave me. Well, I gave that to Margarita years ago. You gave it away? But Bethany, that horror was built by Amaro Ray himself. I didn't want it anymore. It's priceless. So is my friendship with Margarita. After I delivered the tea, I lingered by the door to the second ancillary drawing room. Perhaps Bethany could sense some good in her ungentlemanly caller's heart, but I felt that it was my duty to be on hand in case his change of heart proved fleeting. That was how I came to learn of Alice's real goal. But I knew something they didn't, and soon a plan began to form in my mind. Slipping away, I made a call. Operator. Uh, hello. Can you connect me to the office of Assistant Vice Under Minister Adnauer Pariah? Just a moment. Hello. I hear you're looking for a horror. What? Who is this? Never mind that. Do you want to know where the horror is or not? What do you want? Once you have the horror, you'll call off your agents and leave Bethany Computesworth alone. Of course. You have my word. The horror is no longer in the Computesworth mansion. It was sold to an illicit antiques dealer on Shangri-La going by the name Macbeth. But how do you know that? Hey, wait! Don't hang up! I couldn't tell him that I'd seen the horror on display in Macbeth's shop before leaving for Dakar. The truth was that I had known Macbeth since he set up shop on Shangri-La after the war. The late master Computesworth had a penchant for collecting Earth-made artifacts, and he had always appreciated Macbeth's wide selection, low prices, and no-questions-answered policy. I'd recognized the horror immediately, of course. Bethany's name was still written on it in permanent marker. I had supposed, at the time, that its presence in the shop meant Margarita was short of funds again. But now I realized it was the key to protecting Bethany's future, and perhaps even restoring peace between the Computesworth sisters. I hung up the phone, confident that everything would work out at last. Before the recap, we have another brief discussion about how to pronounce one of the new names that has shown up in this episode. I felt like things were pretty straightforward in this episode, but you mentioned that there is one name that you think we should discuss the pronunciation of. There is. So in this episode, we meet a new mobile suit, a very large and very powerful one, and uh, its anglicization has been changed over the years. I think on a lot of official merchandise now, and I think in the official subtitles for Double Zeta, it is called the Quinn Mantha. However, that's not how it was originally written in English, and that's not actually what they're saying in the uh, dialogue. It was originally transliterated as Queen Mansa, and the Queen Mansa is also what the characters are saying in Japanese. 
My assumption was that Quinn or Queen was supposed to be Queen. Mantha was somewhat more up in the air. I suppose if I had to guess, I would say Manta, like praying mantis, mm. since it has uh, an insect-like quality about it. Something about the way the back panel sort of like lifts mm. in the same way that an insect might lift their thorax up. I could see that. It does have certain insect-like characteristics. I always assumed that the Mansa part came from Mansa, which is the title for the uh, medieval ruler of Mali, the most famous of which was Mansa Musa. Is that a name and title I should know? <laughs> You're talking about it like, ah, naturally. <laughs> this is a reference to... Well, Mansa Musa made a very famous pilgrimage to Mecca at one point, famous principally for the massive amounts of gold that was spent on this lavish pilgrimage, the sheer profligacy of which showed off, of course, the wealth of his kingdom and established him as perhaps the wealthiest ruler in the world in his day, which is a little bit like Axis Xeon tossing around briefcases full of gold. Although while I keep bringing that up, they haven't brought that up since the beginning of the show, so it may not be so much of a focus anymore. Counterpoint, the color of the mobile suit is exactly like a praying mantis. You know, valid. <laughs> I don't actually mention the name of her mobile suit in the recap this week, but I suppose if we need to bring it up again, how do you think we should be saying the name of this mobile suit? All right, this is tricky, because I would have said Queen Mansa. But you make a compelling point for a praying mantis-based mobile suit here. I don't know. Yeah, we're in agreement about queen. I feel like we're going to wind up splitting the difference and calling it the queen mantha. Or mansa. Sort of a Z-S Man sound. Manza. Mansa. Manta, mansa, mansa it is. <laughs> oh, all of them? We're just going to go with everything? Uh, Maybe. Will we ever mention this mobile suit again? That's its own question. It's so cool, though. It's very cool, but beyond saying that it's cool, is there anything more to discuss? I mean, it's also sweet, <laughs> sweet. and rad. Sweet as heck. <laughs> rad as all get out. I propose that we split the difference and call it the Queen Mantha, an option that will make no one happy and irritate everyone. So, ideal. And now the recap for Emery's Glory. After a lightning assault on Axis, Glemmy arrived at Core 3. Now his own fleet and Hamans, led by Kiara, are locked in battle to decide who will lead Neo Zeon. Watching from a distance, Ayug forces decide to launch a mission to kidnap Minerva and use her as leverage against Haman. Despite dissenting voices, Emery eventually agrees to support the mission, anything that might end the war sooner and free her to go see Bright. While Judo and Rue sneak close to Core 3, their mobile suits hidden in dummy asteroids, the Lavian Rose and the Nail Argama will watch their backs and keep the path of escape clear. Once they've crept inside, Rue laments that with the destruction of the manor, they don't know where Minerva is being kept. But Judo isn't worried about finding her. He can sense Haman. 
the two of them bomb a power station near Haman's new base of operations in a mansion, sowing chaos and confusion to obscure their true purpose. Across the mansion from the command center, Minerva sits alone at a dining table, one of her attendants standing just behind her. Her voice carries down the hall as lonely and afraid she cries for Haman. Judo and Rue have only to follow the sound of her voice. The lady-in-waiting goes to fetch Haman, leaving Minerva alone and giving them the opportunity they need to sneak Minerva out and away. Startled by their sudden appearance, Minerva quickly calms and goes with them willingly as long as they promise not to leave her alone. Rue and Minerva are already out the window when Haman arrives, gun drawn. Judo covers their escape and despite the gun pointed at him, stalks toward Haman with a faint smile on his face. She tries to shift his focus, convince him that Glemmy is the bigger threat. But Judo is unmoved. It seems to him, Glemmy's goal of a hereditary monarchy governing the Earth's sphere, and Haman's goal of vengeance on the Zabis through governing the Earth's sphere, amount to the same thing. Judo dives through the window, Haman shooting at his back. Reunited with Rue and Minerva, he and Rue threaten to kill Minerva if the guards won't let them through. Rue quietly reassures Minerva that it's a bluff, that they won't hurt her. But her reassurances aren't necessary. Minerva trusts them. The three climb into the cockpit of a jet, ready to make their escape, when they are suddenly surrounded, their path blocked by Mashima in a mobile suit and ground troops on either side. With ice in her veins, Haman threatens to shoot them down the moment they run. She would rather kill Minerva than let them have her. But if they return the girl, they will be allowed to leave. Her tiny fists beating against Judo's chest, Minerva protests that she doesn't want to go back. But Judo deposits her in front of Haman all the same. He and Rue get back in the jet and take off, Haman's promise buying them a few seconds head start before she orders Mashima and the other jet pilots to pursue. Seconds, however, are enough. The Ayug escapees scrape their way through a closing hatch and out into space, ditching the jet and making their way back to their respective mobile suits. The Levian Rose has crept closer to the space battle. Emery is ready to join the fight, even if it helps one of their enemies, as long as it keeps Glemmy away from Core 3 and keeps Judo and Rue's escape path clear. But their approach attracts attention, and although Glemmy orders Rakan to focus on Kiara's fleet, he gives Pututu permission to attack Ayug in her new mobile suit. Unhesitating, Emery decides that the Lavian Rose will shield the Nail Argama. She orders her crew to abandon ship. Pututu attacks the Ayug force, the relentless barrage from the funnels scattering El, Bicha, and Mondo in their mobile suits. But when she sees that Judo and the Double Zeta have not taken the field, she turns to leave. Furious and protective, Emery jettisons some of the dock ship's repair arms, sending them hurtling away and catching Pudutu a glancing blow. Pudutu turns and aims her most powerful beam weapon at the second wave of improvised projectiles, obliterating them. She then turns the funnels on the Levian Rose, a smile on her face as the ship erupts in small explosions, and Emery's scream echoes through space. From a distance, Judo cannot see what's happened, but he knows Pudutu is responsible. 
His mind calls to her, trying yet again to convince her that she can be different. Can't she see that she's been brainwashed? Made into a puppet? Judo's voice and Elvipudu's echo through her mind. The thought that she is a puppet is too terrible to bear, and she runs back to Blemmy. The Gundam team reunites on the eviscerated bridge of the Lavian Rose. They hold Emery's body close, weeping for the loss of their friend and comrade, before turning their attention back to the warring fleets beyond. As I mentioned during the intro, there is something very peculiar about this episode, which is this is the first episode in Double Zeta for which Tomino himself has a script writing credit. And it's one of only two in Double Zeta that have that distinction. Which means I think that we should give this episode and the dialogue in it a special weight, because it is coming directly from the top. He shares this credit, of course, with Suzuki Yumiko, and it is the last episode of Gundam Double Zeta that she will write. And, if our sources are correct, the last episode of any anime that she would write. With that in mind, there are, I think, two parts of this episode that deserve special attention. One of which is a scene that I think is, like, the core of this episode, the most important scene, and one that I hope we'll discuss quite a bit. And that's the confrontation between Judo and Haman, where I think both of them lay out their positions and their feelings about this whole conflict in clearer terms than they have at any point throughout the show thus far. And it's nice to have that in this episode because it does feel like Tomino is now arriving at the end to lend some clarity to this conflict between these two characters. The other aspect is one that I think is very important to the other writer because I've noticed as we've been going through Double Zeta, Emery tends to appear in episodes written by Suzuki. Those are the episodes where she gets the most development. Those are the episodes that really focus on her as a character. And so it feels like Emery must be very important to Suzuki. And that gives a certain extra poignancy to the fact that Emery dies in Suzuki's last episode that she would write ever. But before we delve into any of that, we have to talk about this episode title. The episode is called Emery Sange, which a translator has chosen Emery's Glory. I feel like they were trying to tone down the obviousness of the title, and they didn't quite get there <laughs> because our reaction the moment we saw that title was, oh no. However, the word sange is even more explicit. Uh, it has one meaning from Buddhism. It's a rite that involves scattering flowers. The kanji for sange are the kanji for to fall or to scatter and one of the kanji for flowers or flower petals. But its other meaning, and the meaning it obviously has in this context, is a glorious death in battle, a heroic death. I think we've talked before about how uh, falling flowers are a metaphor for young people dying in battle. So this seems like a continuation of that. It's part of why there's such a long association between samurai and cherry blossoms in particular. Cherry blossoms have fleeting beauty. They peak and then they are gone. They die at the height of their loveliness. And so your many idealized depictions of warriors had them dying at the peak of their 
physical beauty, strength, prowess. And in fact, they are all the more beautiful because they are fleeting, because it's such a brief blossoming. If they lingered, we would become accustomed to them. And if they lasted long enough to start to wilt and decay, then they would lose that momentary perfection. The use of the word sange here is actually very clever. I'm sure there are other words they could have used to get the same sense of like glorious, heroic, and also tragic death in battle for a young warrior. But sange specifically has that double meaning of like scattering flower petals. And she's captaining the la vie en rose, which looks like a big flower. And shooting parts of it at Pudu, no less. Are those the like pistols or the stamens? I, I don't know, flower don't anatomy. Know. They she's, could be petals. Petals can be long and skinny. She's shooting some kind of things, some kind of flower anatomy. Flower petal, attack! I don't want to delve into Emery too much here. I talk about her extensively later in the episode, and I don't want to repeat what I'm going to cover then. But we did go through the whole episode with this sense of anticipation for what was going to happen to her. And, you know, a few episodes ago, I lost my cool dealing with a young woman sacrificing herself to protect somebody else uh, and motivating everyone in the cast with her heroic death. And on paper, what happens to Emery should be equally bad. If you just read a high-level description of what happens in this episode, you'd think, ugh, it's another woman in Gundam sacrificing herself, making herself into a shield, willingly dying for the sake of motivating everybody. But that's not really what happens here. And despite my concerns and despite expecting the worst, I liked this episode. I thought Emery's ultimate fate was handled really well. It's sad and lovely at the same time. And... It's tragic, and it's all the more tragic because it didn't need to happen. But it's not like she rushed into battle intending to die. She made a mistake. She made a miscalculation. If she hadn't attacked the Queen Mantha when it was flying away, then maybe she would still be alive. But I can't really fault her for making that attack on what she thought was a vulnerable enemy. And who in their right mind is to anticipate that a single mobile suit is going to have a beam weapon powerful enough to eviscerate a dock ship. Yeah. She clearly knew that what she was doing was dangerous or she wouldn't have made all the crew leave. It's clear from fairly early on that she believes going down with the ship is a real possibility. However, going up against a single mobile suit in your huge ship so as to keep that mobile suit away from your own mobile suits doesn't seem, it's not illogical. No. And more than any of the various sacrificial deaths that have happened in Gundam so far, this reminded me of when Captain Beckner takes the radish to go and try and protect Emma. But even that was foolish in a way that Emery here is not. Emery is making a calculated decision, and it's self-sacrificial, but she's going about it in a way to minimize loss of life. She does tell all the crew to leave and not come back for her. She is looking at this play out and is thinking the nail Argama has to survive. They are our best shot at beating Neo Zeon. I need to do everything in my power to protect the nail Argama. And that's what she does. She's cool headed under fire and the show affords her an enormous amount of dignity. 
and even her pining for Bright, which I'm not going to say too much about because I know that's coming up in uh, your piece later. But even that, I think, is treated really nicely in this episode. And the relationship between Emery and Millie, which we have only ever seen on screen for a couple of minutes in the entire runtime of this series, is nonetheless so, like, touching. You can really feel the affection between the two of them. Well, if we're going to resist the temptation to talk about Emery too much, we should move on. Sorry. <laughs> Was not expecting an episode of Double Zeta to make me contemplate the morality or lack thereof of kidnapping, but here we are. Not the first kidnapping that has happened in this show. No, not at all. Uh, as will be no surprise to any of you, it immediately got me thinking about all of these much broader implications of like kidnapping in our society and what we call it and who's allowed to do it and who isn't. And that's all very complicated <laughs> and we don't need to get into it now. Uh-huh. But since this is Haman we're talking about and Minerva wants to go, I'm going to say this is okay and Eno is wrong. <laughs> this is more of a rescue than a kidnapping, even if they didn't know that when they went in. Even if they are using her. Everyone is using her. Not that that makes it better, but everyone is. The one moment that made me question some of that is our first shot of Minerva and the first things that she says uh, for episodes and episodes and episodes literally the first thing she said in Double Zeta. Oh, really? Yeah, she has not had a line of dialogue until this point. Wow, okay. Well, is to cry for Haman. And we learn by the end of the episode, she knows Haman is using her. She suspects Haman does not truly care for her. But she's lonely and she's scared. She associates Haman with safety. She's potentially sensing the approaching battle. Uh, we know she is sensitive in that way. She has freaked out <laughs> when... New types have come close before, although she didn't with Pudu too, so. Well, and she becomes comforted when Judo and Rue arrive, so it's not them. I It could be Glemmy, though. I was just going to say, if I could sense Glemmy Toto coming anywhere near me, especially if I were a girl around Minova's age, I would be freaking out, too. Two other brief thoughts about Minova, because we don't actually get to see a whole lot of her this episode, but... Uh, the fact that Haman keeps Minerva with her, even though they're on the war front, as it were, just further illustrates how weak Haman's position really is. Because if she felt strong in her control of the government, if she felt uh, any sort of, like, security <laughs> in any colony whatsoever, she would leave Minerva there. There's no particularly good reason to keep Minerva with her in a dangerous place when she could keep her in a secure place. <laughs> she just doesn't have one. And I think she needs to have Minerva on hand because Minerva lends her legitimacy. I think we see this in the way Haman negotiates with Judo and uh, Rue because she does negotiate. She threatens that if they try to escape with Minerva, she'll blow them all up. And I think she'd do it. I think rather than letting them use Minerva against her, she would just kill Minerva. But that's not her first step. Even though she certainly could do it and, and eliminate this problem right away, she does opt to negotiate. And I think that shows how valuable Minerva is to her. Right. I'm just saying if she had sufficient control then she doesn't need to be able to physically trot Minerva out in front of people. Like, that's a sign of her weak position. I'm agreeing with you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is a yes and. Okay. 
the final thing that I wanted to point out, I feel as though in most societies, in most times, you would not raise a child alone like this. You would have other children around, and if not that child's own siblings, then the children of other people who live in the household, people who work in the household, friends, family, uh, boarders, like, I don't know, there would be other children around. Her total isolation from anyone even remotely close to her age is strange. Well, while what you're proposing is certainly a good way to raise children, Minerva is by no means the first royal child, the first prince or princess to grow up very isolated from people their own age. Often royalty requires a kind of mystique that requires isolation. She can't grow up like a regular child because even though she is a regular child, as Judo says, to be a princess she needs to be something else, something apart. And that isolation makes it easier for Haman to control her. This just brings me back to Haman and how my image of her as so in control and so on top of things is crumbling as this series ends. Because if the idea was eventually to transition power to Minevah, even if it was just supposed to be in sort of a nominal sense and Haman was going to continue to be the power behind the throne, having those childhood relationships breeds so much loyalty that is so much harder to come by later. So why wouldn't you want to raise her with the children of important politicians? I mean, this is why rich people send all their kids to the same schools, right? Like, you build connections, you are able to then use those relationships as an adult. Sure. But Haman doesn't want Minevah to rule. Haman wants to get revenge on the whole Zabi family using Minevah. Haman doesn't have a plan. I, her little speech made me so confused, like so many things that she says anymore. You know, she points to Glemmy and says, he wants a hereditary monarchy. Okay, that, that sounds like Glemmy, all right. And how is Haman different? Well, Haman just wants to use the bloodline for revenge. Revenge on who? Revenge how? They're all dead. Revenge against their legacy. What does that mean? She's going to take it for her own. And then what? Well, I'm not sure about the next step, but I'm pretty sure after that is profit. I'm just saying, like, if her vision of vengeance is to take over what they built, <laughs> rebrand it as her own, and erase them from history, okay, I guess, you know, getting into power will achieve that. But then what? That's not, like... That doesn't provide much guidance once she has power. Well, power is its own justification. The goal of power is to obtain more power and then to hold on to it. Yes, I agree with you. <laughs> I'm saying I'm continuing my refrain of Haman being delusional. It would seem that she really thinks that her vengeance plan is somehow morally superior to Glemmy's hereditary monarchy plan. But as Judo points out, functionally these will be the same. And I think Judo is right about that. Though to my mind, Haman's speech here maybe unintentionally evokes some of the propaganda from the English Civil War when the Republican faction, in talking about their decision to ultimately execute the King Charles I, describe him as the man of blood. 
whose policies and mismanagement and etc. had caused so much bloodshed, so much chaos and dislocation, and this belief that the only way forward was to execute him and bring an end to the monarchy, to the idea of monarchy, that only the blood of the person who was responsible could cleanse this like curse that was hanging over their nation. And I do think Haman is, is thinking in similar terms, that her, her domination of the Earth sphere, of the whole of humanity, is better because it's founded on power and merit and, I don't know, new type supremacism. There's definitely some of that in there too, and not on some outdated old ideology of blood right. But her plan contains its own contradictions. She can't get the power without using the bloodline. She can't keep the power without Minerva. And is she going to eventually kill Minerva? Is that the plan? Make it look like somebody else did it at an opportune time? You know, I think she would like everybody to believe that she is capable of that, but I am not certain that she is. As long as she's using Minerva to create her legitimacy, she cannot delegitimize the like. She would not be the first regent to consolidate power and then eliminate the quote-unquote rightful heir to the throne. My point is mainly uh, that Haman has a lot less control and is much more emotional than she is depicted, than she seems early on in the series. Well, she is very good at using the symbolism of power, the aesthetics of it. And the show really indulges her in that. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But I do want to say that I agree with you that these episodes show Haman's whole house of cards coming apart. I kept wondering, what is Glemmy's pitch? What is Glemmy telling all these people that gets them on his side? Because he has a lot of people on his side now. He has a whole fleet and a lot of soldiers willing to fight and die for him. We've seen ourselves that people tangentially involved, the forced labor at the mines, remember the zombies with some fondness. Glemmy, who may or may not actually have any biological connection to the zombies, is certainly willing to trade on their name and the rumors and implications around him. Not for nothing, Haman may just have botched this. The war may have been going on so long, it may be so difficult and onerous for the general population to sustain it, to feed it their sons and their labor and their food and, their, <laughs> you know, uh, they're almost certainly undergoing like rationing and shortages and a tremendous amount of sacrifice from the population to support this war. And if what she's bringing home isn't good enough... <laughs> If the sacrifice is too great, then they might just want her gone. And there may very well be an aspect of just raw, pure misogyny. She is a woman leading an army that is something like 99% men. Speaking of Haman has botched this, this episode includes a couple of references to the Earth Federation fleet and the Ayug fleet finally making a move, coming to the side three airspace. They are on their way. Who knows if they'll arrive in time. But an interesting question this raises is, would they have moved against her if not for the Dublin colony drop? You think it's her Pearl Harbor? Well, the thing is, I don't know. A lot of people in the fandom, when they talk about Double Zeta, do 
characterize the Dublin drop as a massive mistake on Haman's part. That before that, the Earth Federation was willing to just give her side three to make her go away, and that afterwards she hardened their resistance against her. Personally, I don't agree with that. It's interesting because when you were halfway through the sentence, I thought you were going to say, would they have made a move if Glemmy hadn't moved against her? That, I think, is the much more oh, yeah. important event. I think they saw weakness and they pounced. I don't think it has anything to do with the Dublin drop. I don't either. That would really undercut the callousness of all the Federation officials willingly sacrificing Dublin and then side three to get Haman off their backs. And we've seen nothing from them except opportunism. Ayug too. So, of course, this is more of the same. There's very little stomach for a fight there. However, if your enemy is tearing itself apart from the inside... And you can just sweep in and mop up the pieces. Yeah, why wouldn't you? I mean, this is... To use a phrase that you used back when we were talking about the, the Dublin episodes for the Federation elites, this is a win, 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 win situation. <laughs> I mean, you've got to think that when Axis Zeon showed up and formed Neo Zeon and brought all those old Zeon remnants into the fold, they probably also brought a lot of old dissidents and everybody who was discontented with Federation leadership out of the woodwork brought them into Haman's Neo-Zeon forces, and now they're right out in the open and ready to be wiped out. The confrontation between Haman and Judo in this episode, in this scene, is interesting both textually but also visually. It's constructed quite uniquely. I think this is the first time in Double Zeta that Haman and Judo have ever had a conversation on the same level like physically standing on the same surface. Instead of on a staircase or... Yeah, or in some other construction that puts them on very different levels. Like when Judo uh, first meets her and he like falls off of a balcony and hurts his butt landing on a thorn bush, Haman sort of appears at a distance from him. Even later in this episode when he's standing in the cockpit of the jet and she's on the ground. And before that, she's at the top of the stairs and then she walks down them. So you know, we always see them separated by a significant distance. We see them uh, on different levels. In that one episode where he infiltrated her ship and she like very aggressively tried to recruit him with weird sexual overtones to their interactions, because they were both floating in zero gravity, she was always above him in a domineering position. This is part of what I meant about how the show uh, indulges her aesthetic desire for power. Here, though, they're standing right in front of each other, just looking at each other like people. And we actually realize Haman is like a couple of inches shorter than Judo. You never get the sense for how small physically Haman is until you see her in a scene like this. This is also the least overawed we've ever seen Judo. The most confident, even in the face of a gun, and all of Haman's aura. And that could mean that he is stronger and more confident than he's been previously. It could mean she's weaker. It could be a combination of the two. But I wouldn't put it past the art directors or the animators of this episode to make sure we see that Haman is smaller because she feels smaller, because it's like metaphorical mm -hmm. in addition to being literal. 
Tomino was also one of the storyboard artists for this episode, and that sounds exactly like the kind of thing I've read Tomino saying about his approach to storyboarding and composing scenes. So I have no doubt that this was an intentional decision. We also see in this scene, Haman lowers the gun. She doesn't hold him at gunpoint, she just talks to him. And so I think that's another reason why this scene is uh, so important. It's when they are both sort of at their least guarded and just talking about things. And I think Haman really does lay out her position with the minimum of deception. And Judo listens and he understands. And then he says, in the end, you're not going to be any better than him. And I have to stop you. How long has this conflict been going on? Something like a year. But it's it's begun slightly before Zeta begins. So slightly more than a year? Really? Only that long, huh? Zeta starts up in UC 87 and we're in UC 88 now, I believe. Eh, that makes my sort of fatigue on the part of the populace explanation for people turning on Haman make less sense, but... She must have started preparing well before Axis returned to Earth's orbit. Presumably, that asteroid has been on a war footing for some time now. Imagine the tax and production burden on the populace to sustain all these new warships and new mobile suits. How many small children are being taken to be used as body doubles or psychic super soldiers? Speaking of psychic super soldiers, we get some additional hints about Mashima. They say he's been enhanced, perhaps over-enhanced. As with Kiara, at the beginning of the series, we have no reason to believe that he is a cyber new type. No reason to believe he's undergone the various medical and psychiatric procedures necessary to make that happen. However, maybe he always was, or maybe since the last time we saw him, it's been done. I assume that both Mashima and Kiara disappearing and coming back with totally new looks, new attitudes, and uh, significantly increased powers suggests a uh, off-screen cyber new typification, an enhancement of their already existing abilities. Both of them were shown in their appearances in the first half of the show having brief fleeting psychic new type connections with Judo, suggesting that Axis here is taking something that already exists and then augmenting it, drawing it out. Right. They're looking for latent ability and then seeking through any means necessary to strengthen it. However, for me, it calls into question all of those very goofy memories that Mashima had of Haman. At the time, I assumed that was him looking at the world through the rose-colored glasses of his very chivalrous devotion <laughs> to Lady Haman. But what if those are just implanted memories? We know that's a thing they do. Could very well have been. I mean, we know she's using the roses to, like, control him in some way. It's like a trigger phrase. Roses are my trigger! I mean, in this, yet yeah, literally. Uh, yes. <laughs> Mashima, admire the scent of your rose and let it calm you down. The rose is also so explicitly sexual. Mm-hmm. When she's handing it to him and saying, it has the scent of my skin and my life's <laughs> breath in it. You made me think of pheromones, but ultimately... Flowers have always had a certain connotation to them. Well, I mean, they are sex organs of plants. Right. And she only wears the flower for Mashima, right? 
Like she's wearing it at the beginning of this scene and then she gives it to him, but she does not wear that flower normally. She put that on so that she could take it off and hand it to him. The other thing I was struck by is from now on, anytime a new character gets introduced, I'm going to be wondering, are you a cyber new type or are you a cyber new type's minder? Fair question. I mean, when she first appears, one might think that Ilya was merely his apprentice, his squire, new his companion, girlfriend. But no, she's clearly his minder. At least in the case of Kiara with Nia and Lance, they seem to be doing a pretty good job. Well, they've got her outnumbered. Clearly Mashima doesn't need to be because of the rose. It is perhaps one of their more sensible innovations that if they have a uncontrollable, potentially dangerous asset, they put some very dependable people <laughs> with that asset to keep it under control, keep it safe. You know, they're part guard, part babysitter. Purutu is weirdly affectionate with Glemmy in so this episode. Weird. Even he thinks it's weird. He looks askance at her <laughs> when she sort of like hugs him. See, I didn't think that was him thinking it was weird, but what that did for me was it finally connected the dots. And I was like, oh, every single Gundam entry so far has featured a primary antagonist who is an older man with a weird relationship with a younger woman who is way more affectionate towards him than he is towards her. First Gundam had Shar and Lala, Zeta Gundam had Sirocco and Sarah, uh, and Double Zeta has Glemmy and Pudu. Like that scene of Pudu sort of like affectionately rubbing her cheek against Glemmy's could have been Lala with Shar or Sarah with Sirocco. But it feels like such an about face from the introduction of Pudu 2 where Everything about her is so unsettling because she's a, in a child's body, but talking and acting like an adult. She is smarter than him. She has nothing but disdain for him. She doesn't need him. You know, the whole energy is completely different in a way that I liked because the implication is, you know, everything that they've done to mess with her brain and body has created this disconnect, this mm -hmm. sense of wrongness mm -hmm. about her. And the affection doesn't feel wrong in the same way. It feels wrong because it feels out of character based on the way she's acted so far. It does feel a little bit as if she has decided to play nice with Glemmy now. <laughs> well, he gave her a cool new mobile suit. No, I think it's, I don't know, just a simple case of making her more sort of blandly likable, making her more like El Pudu. Perhaps. Which makes it, I don't know, feel more believable later on when Judo is appealing to her. But like all cyber new types, she has a fixation. She only wants to fight the double Zeta. She is not interested in fighting the Livian Rose until Emery launches those ship parts at her. It is Judo, not the double Zeta, really, because she's talked about wanting to get back at Judo before. But the language in the episode is always like, oh, the double Zeta's not here, the double Zeta's not here. Mm -hmm. But I call attention to the judo thing because remember, LP Puru also had a fixation on judo. This is something that the two siblings have in common. I'm not confident that the show will do anything with this, but we also have a moment that adds a, a layer of complexity 
to all of the previous discussions of Purutu really being a good person deep down, which is that she shoots this incredibly powerful beam at the Levian Rose, which she has no reason to believe there's only one person on it. She probably thinks it's fully staffed. And it explodes, basically. When <laughs> It's a little odd. It looks like it completely explodes, and then at the end, most of the skeleton of it is still there, so it's kind of unclear what happened to it. But it was bad. And she smiles, a very contented, happy smile, at having done this, at having potentially killed hundreds of people. Which makes all of the constant insistence from all these people around her that she is, in fact, really good deep down uh, start to ring a little hollow and desperate. And it's even after she has attacked the La Vie and Rose that Judo still appeals to her, still says, you know, this isn't the real you. You've been brainwashed when you were in cold sleep. So certainly even this doesn't dissuade him. I just would have thought that at least one person was entertaining the possibility that even if she weren't a puppet, she would still be bloodthirsty and dangerous. Well, I guess you are. You're one person. <laughs> I meant in the show, man. The show. The personages. And now, Tom's continuing research on the tale of the Heike. Last episode, I concluded with the end of the Heiji Disturbance in 1160, when Minamoto leader Yoshitomo failed in his attempt to seize control of Japan's imperial court, and was forced to flee the capital for his clan stronghold in the east. The once mighty lord, separated from his followers, was betrayed by a trusted vassal. Ambushed and murdered while bathing, legend has it that his final words were, if only I had so much as a wooden training sword. In the aftermath of the Heiji disturbance, the Taira, led by Kiyomori, conducted a bloody purge of prominent members and supporters of Yoshitomo's family. There were still plenty of Minamoto, and Minamoto-aligned vassals out in the eastern provinces, but the main family line was decimated. Still, there were a few important survivors. Among them was Yorimasa. I haven't mentioned him by name yet, but he was the Minamoto leader who held his troops back and merely watched as Yoshitomo's force was defeated by the Taira. In payment for this service, he was spared the fate of his relatives and remained at court, where he was greatly esteemed as a man equally blessed in archery and poetry. But Yorimasa will not die peacefully in bed, and we will hear from him again before the end. Yoshitomo's surviving sons were also spared. His two eldest had joined him in battle and died during the course of the rebellion. But his third son, just 13 years old, had joined his father and brothers on the battlefield, and he survived. This was Yoritomo, and you're going to want to remember him. Fortunately for the very young man, Yoritomo was separated from the others during the chaotic retreat, and so he was not murdered by the treacherous Lord Osada. Instead, he was captured and dragged before Taira no Kiyomori. Yoritomo had every reason to expect death, but his resolve and valor impressed even Kiyomori, and perhaps more importantly, 
Kiyomori's stepmother saw in him the spitting image of her own beloved son who had died young. She implored Kiyomori to spare the boy on her behalf, and eventually the warlord relented. Yoritomo would instead merely be banished to Izu province. At the time, Izu was a remote, nowhere kind of province, and the base of the Hojo clan, a cadet branch of the Taira. The Hojo and their vassals would be his jailers, and at the slightest sign of disloyalty, the mercy so unexpectedly offered could be abruptly rescinded. Yoritomo's younger brothers, all too young to fight and one still a babe in arms, fled the capital with their mother Tokiwa. But their refuge was discovered after Kiyomori tortured the boy's grandmother. These boys were also brought before Kiyomori for judgment. But this time he became entranced by their mother and offered her a deal. Her sons would be spared if she would consent to become his concubine. Tokiwa agreed, and her children were dispersed to various foster families to live a little while longer in the flickering shadow of Kiyomori's indulgence. The youngest of them, less than a year old, was Minamoto no Yoshitsune, and you will want to remember him, too. You have probably noticed that the focus of this story has shifted from emperors, retired emperors, and their ministers among the high nobility to professional warriors, principally those of the Taira and Minamoto clans. This is only natural, because the locus of power in Japan has shifted too. Before the failed Minamoto coup, power in the court was divided between the retired emperor Go Shirakawa, the Fujiwara leader Michinori, the Taira leader Kiyomori, and the Minamoto leader Yoshitomo. Even though Go Shirakawa, Michinori, and Kiyomori formed a kind of alliance or an unofficial triumvirate, the balance of their individual ambitions prevented any one faction from dominating the court. Ironically, by executing Michinori, massacring many of Go Shirakawa's allies, and making the retired emperor reliant on Taira force of arms for his salvation, Yoshitomo's rebellion actually allowed Kiyomori to become the leading figure at court. In fact, some sources suggest that Kiyomori actually tricked Yoshitomo into rebellion for that exact reason. In any event, after the Heiji disturbance, all the appointments and promotions would go to the Taira family. Kiyomori himself took the top court position, equivalent to a prime minister. He followed the old Fujiwara playbook. He married his daughters into the imperial family, and in 1180, 20 years after the Heiji disturbance, he completed his slow-motion coup d'etat by compelling the 19-year-old sitting emperor, Takakura, to abdicate in favor of the two-year-old Antoku. Antoku, of course, was Kiyomori's grandson and puppet. As we are now focused on these warrior elites, it behooves us to take a moment to ask, who are they and where did they come from? At the outset, weeks ago, I described the Taira and Minamoto houses as offshoots of the imperial clan, descendants of princes who had been stripped of their imperial status. This is true, but incomplete. As always in history, the real answer is more complex and not fully understood today. 
First of all, neither warrior house was descended from a single prince or even from a single emperor. Rather, they were divided into distinct branches composed of the descendants of a particular emperor. In the Minamoto, just for example, the most prominent of these branches was the one descended from the emperor Seiwa. In fact, all the Minamoto I have mentioned so far have been from this Seiwa branch, but there were more than 20 such branches distributed throughout the provinces. There, with imperial pedigree and far from the power of the central court, they cultivated their own bases of power, often serving as local magistrates or becoming powerful landholders. And over time, while their distant cousins in the capital pursued art, philosophy, and literature, they learned how to fight. In the centuries of expansion and consolidation, the emperors of Japan had followed the Chinese imperial model, relying principally on conscript soldiers. But levies are expensive and unpopular. They take farmers out of the field, and a conscript army must be fed and trained at the state's expense. So as large-scale external wars ceased, the central government started to rely on semi-autonomous provincial authorities to keep order. Landlords, large temples, those Shoen estates I talked about a few episodes ago, and local magistrates all started to employ private guard units. Now initially, many of these private soldiers seem to have been all-purpose ruffians, more familiar with violence than skilled at fighting. This included hunters, but also murderers, arsonists, and outlaws of various kinds. Increasingly, however, those with more developed skills sought out or were scouted by aristocratic families to serve as their permanent retainers, bodyguards, and enforcers. Seeing which way the wind was blowing, even the provincial aristocrats themselves became increasingly militarized. Able to afford the best horses, equipment, and training, and supported by their numerous retainers, they soon formed the elite upper echelon of this emerging warrior class. As they accumulated power and influence, these soldiers and their families formed complex, hereditary networks of patronage and loyalty, similar to how feudalism developed in Europe. Lower-status warriors became the retainers or vassals of higher-status ones, who in turn became the retainers or vassals of yet higher-status warriors, and these relationships often became hereditary. When the time for battle came, a warrior would form a band made up of his sons, brothers, and retainers. They would ride, camp, eat, and fight together. When we talk about battle in this era, we often talk about duels, and you might reasonably assume that a duel involves just two soldiers. But usually, in this context, a duel would actually be two soldiers and their respective bands, all fighting each other. When civil war came and armies formed, a clan chieftain like Kiyomori or Yoshitomo would send out the call to all of their kinfolk, vassals, and allies throughout the provinces. Those leaders would call their kin and vassals, who would call theirs, and so on down to the very lowest retainers. But there was always the risk of inter-clan rivalry, or even betrayal. Part of the important context behind the Hogen and Heiji disturbances 
is that both of those rebellions were pretty much limited to the capital itself. They broke out and were suppressed so quickly that all the fighting was carried out by the relatively small number of soldiers already present in the capital and in the direct service of the various Minamoto, Taira, Fujiwara, and imperial contenders. Someone as important as Yoshitomo could muster hundreds or perhaps a few thousand soldiers just from his immediate family and their retainers. But the bulk of his allies were stuck, watching from far away as their clans' fortunes rose or fell, according to events many miles away. I have mostly been using the Minamoto for examples, but the Taira followed the same model. If there was a difference between them, it was that the Minamoto were stronger in the eastern provinces versus the Taira in the west. This is, however, a bigger deal than it sounds. The eastern provinces had seen large-scale fighting more recently, and the by-now dominant horse-archer combat style seems to have originated in the east, probably from the influence of their recently defeated Emishi neighbors. And the easterners were widely acknowledged to be much better at it. It was in this environment, in the east, among the rich warrior families of the provinces, where the young Yoritomo grew up under the watchful eyes of his Hojo minders. As Kiyomori bent the imperial court and the whole capital to his whims, Yoritomo spent twenty years dreaming of freedom and revenge. He would get his shot at both thanks to a former trader trying to make good, a fortune-telling charlatan, the face shape of an emperor, and more seduction than you would expect from this kind of story. All that and more on the next installment of Heike Monogatari Breakdown. Heike Monogatari being the Japanese term for what we call the tale of the Heike. That name for these recurring segments was suggested by our listener, Rose. Thank you for the good suggestion, Rose. I thought the key to saying goodbye to Emery and the Levian Rose was going to be in the name of the massive docking and repair ship. Levian Rose is a famous love song written and performed by famous French singer Edith Piaf, and covered by countless other artists. The song talks about how love makes everything beautiful. And the ship taking its name from the song is not the only connection between Edith Piaf and Gundam. We already speculated that Charles Aznavour's name was inspired by French singer Charles Aznavour, and it turns out that Piaf mentored Aznavour early in his career. Another of Piaf's most famous songs is Non ne je regrette rien, a song about having no regrets, which Piaf dedicated to the French Foreign Legion during the Algerian War, the war that led to Algeria's independence from France and likely provided inspiration for parts of the Africa arc in Gundam Double Zeta. And yet as I read through song lyrics and translations, lists of songwriters and composers, biographies, nothing clicked. Nothing I read felt like Emery. I found myself scanning our bookshelves without any particular ideas or leads when my eyes lit upon the book Tears of Longing, Nostalgia and the Nation in Japanese Popular Song by Christine Yano. 
and within minutes of cracking it open, it was as if I'd found the code for us to understand the young acting captain. I will be quoting the book extensively in the piece that follows. Yano's book is specifically about enka, a, quote, popular Japanese ballad genre that originated in the early 20th century and combines Western instruments with Japanese scales, rhythms, vocal techniques, and poetic inventions in melodramatic songs of love, loss, and yearning. It's a very structured genre, with kata, which are set forms and conventions that govern the music, the performance, both vocal and physical, and the lyrics, with their language of stereotypes and cliches. It is an inherently nostalgic genre, timelessly old. It sounds much the same whether it was written in 1950 or 1990. The songs are of sadness, struggle, perseverance, loneliness, and heartbreak. One scholar very eloquently describes the, quote, pearling of sadness in Japan since the Showa period. That sadness has been wrapped in a layer of beauty, rendered aesthetic and valuable in and of itself. And on top of the perception of sadness as beautiful, part of Japan's national identity includes a glorification of suffering. It is not only aesthetic, but moral, aspirational, commendable. If life is full of sadness and suffering, then it is, quote, through dreams that life is made endurable. Yano further clarifies that romance is the stuff of dreams, fantasy, and illusion, not lived but imagined. I've always thought that Emery really intended to try to be with Bright officially. She even mentioned marriage once. But what if the reality is that Emery's vision of Bright and of herself with Bright is a dream? Not in the sense of a goal, but in the sense of something unreal, illusory. A mental picture with no expectation of fulfillment, simultaneously pleasant and painful. In Enka, men's songs are frequently about the longing for their furusato, or homeland, and their mother, or about struggling to find and follow their path through life. Whereas women's songs are mostly about love, hopeless, lost, doomed love. Romance is fabricated out of sudden, inexplicable passion and treasured because it is fleeting. Yano writes, A woman's heart loves foolishly. She commits herself to one person only to suffer painful longing thereafter. I've complained before that the writers make Emery ridiculous. Her behavior while under the spell of her feelings is laughable not just to the audience, but even to her fellow characters who tease her for her hopeless attachment. As Yano points out, we are meant to laugh at the fool. A woman's love gains value through its single-mindedness and its loyalty, but at the same time, it makes her an object of ridicule. Yet in death, Emery is respected and loved for her bravery and her sacrifice. Her feelings for Bright, inasmuch as they influenced her selfless actions, are treated reverently. What was a joke is made lovely. Lingering affection may be foolish, but it is also considered normal, loyal, beautiful, and feminine. 
in Enka songs, romance is often tragic because it is a negotiation between desire and duty, the heart and the nation. Loves are destined, fated, and yet they are doomed, usually because they go against the social order in some way. Like the beauty of sadness and the beauty of what is fleeting, there is beauty in the impossible. The next two passages I'm going to quote in their entirety because they're really well written. Individual desire is at odds with the family, the village, and potentially the nation. Lovers become violators of the moral code. And yet the stages of romance, meeting by chance, loving, parting, and longing, in effect reaffirm the values that hold the nation together. Acceptance of fate, emotional strength, endurance of hardship, and perseverance. Those who go against the grain in an ironic turnabout become upholders of the nation's values. What does the Enka version of romance give women? In important ways, it subverts the 19th century good wife, wise mother paradigm upon which the modern Japanese nation was built, replacing it with a mistress, bar hostess paradigm of female antiheroes at the margins of society. And if its cast of characters is subversive, so also is its glorification of their actions, engaging in illicit love affairs, fleeing from social scorn, hiding from the eyes of the world, which contradict the culture's idealization of the family, the village, and the nation. At the same time, the songs endorse the moral substance underlying the traditional paradigm, sincerity, loyalty, and devotion. Though she did not start out that way, Mirai, as we've known her since Zeta Gundam, is the epitome of a good wife and wise mother. And for Bright, his family does not represent individual relationships, they represent home. Mirai, Hathaway, and Shaman are Bright's Furusato. As in our own world, in the world of the universal century, the Furusato, or hometown, is largely an abstraction an atmosphere, synonymous with an idealized, blissful youth, a natural existence, family, and tradition. Not a place, but an ideal. Above all, it exists at an unbridgeable distance, so that it can exist permanently as something to long for. Because after all, there is beauty in longing. A mother is, quote, stalwart and active, the practical and emotional backbone of the family, and bearer of tradition, Mirai to a T. While Emery is the young career woman, not quite an anti-hero or on the margins, she still doesn't fit within a certain imagined ideal life for a woman. In the context of this romance, she has a fragile passivity. Yes, she approaches bright, she doesn't try to hide her feelings, but she is so clearly at the mercy of uncontrollable emotions, waiting for some definitive acceptance or rejection. But for them to be together would be the overthrow of Bright's entire identity, a rejection of his responsibilities. It is impossible. Would the version of Bright who upends his life to be with Emery, abandoning his promises and responsibilities, 
have inspired Emery's devotion in the first place? Would she feel so passionately if he were free to return her feelings? In a bit of significant repetition, Emery once again describes herself and Bright as Itai Doshin, literally, different bodies but a shared mind, defined as harmony of mind between two persons, two persons acting in perfect accord, a phrase usually used in romantic contexts. We could interpret it as delusional, creating a sense of intimacy and connection that isn't there, but I think it's more than that. Beyond the silliness of Emery's behavior, a deep current of admiration runs through her obsession. Bright isn't only a romantic dream. He is an ideal to live up to. In emulating what she sees as his best qualities, she can feel closer to him. In trying to act how he'd act, she honors him. In summing up Enka's themes, Yano says that men follow a lifelong path and women follow their hearts. There's no path for Emery, only what she knows in the moment to be right. Unflinching and unhesitating, Emery decides to use the Lavian Rose to shield the Nail Argama. The massive ship has provided help and safety, refuge and support to ships of the Ayug fleet for years, and she offers it up in one final act of sacrifice to preserve their best chance at defeating Neo Zeon. She is at once a captain going down with her ship, a young warrior dying a heroic death in battle, a mother sacrificing herself to save her children in the form of the crews of the two ships, and an unrequited lover, loyal and devoted unto death. In the end, there is no greater eulogy for her than the one provided by Millie. No words she would have treasured more than those tearful declarations. You did your duty brilliantly. Captain Bright could do no better. Next time on episode 3.43, Bring Me the Head of Haman Karn, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 45, and I made a huge, tiny mistake. Haman lives rent-free in a lot of heads. The Wages of Evil. The Quick and the Dead. Cyber New Type Rumble. Hang on, is Astanaji a weeb? Oh hi, Lina! Nani the heck? There is no fear in the heart of a himbo. And we are all made of meat. Everyone you know will someday be dead. 
you will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. The eulogy for Deputy Captain Emery Ounce included Epilogue, Instrumental Version by Josh Woodward. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Now the story of a tyrannical family who lost everything, and the one daughter who had no choice but to inherit their legacy. It's Kido Senshi Arrested Development. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. Not going to include that because of the implications. Yeah, I... I just debating how to address that. Isn't that like butter in Spanish? Mantequilla? So no, is what you're saying. Manzana is apple. Are you sure you're not just trying to get my goat since I've been trying to get you to learn Spanish forever? (laughs) I like goats, though. We're straying from the topic at hand. Are you doing like a T-S sound? Mansa? I wasn't. Maybe I should have been. That's how it sounded to my ear. Unfortunately, I'm thinking a thought that has to do with all of the stuff that I'm going to say in the research slash memorial. Can you use it as a tease? Possibly. Emery Sange. Emery no Sange? I think it's just Emery Sange. Yeah, that would be very (laughs) embarrassing if that went out. Did you like it? It was quite, quite good. I thought you might like it. I anticipated you liking it. The other little tidbit about Judo in this episode is that he is revealed to have been much more of a criminal than I thought was previously implied. I assumed there had been some petty theft and maybe some shoplifting or taking things left unattended. I would not have guessed he had done a lot of burglary and breaking into places. Uh, 
I'm sure there are many, many legitimate purposes for using a laser to cut a bit of glass out of a window to unlatch it from the outside. He probably just like helped people who had locked their keys in their cars. It's going to get cut off, so I just need to, you know, say something. Something that will make Nina laugh. I'll be waiting for you at the Sabaro in the mall. Real rumble. God, there's a lot of noisy traffic right now.